You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the founder and chief executive officer of Valens Global and a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He has led numerous policy projects, including serving as the lead drafter of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's 2019 Strategic Framework for Countering Terrorism and Targeted Violence. His latest book is titled Enemies Near and Far, How Jihadist Groups Strategize, Plot, and Learn. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. David Gartenstein-Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Addy. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to join you today. So, Dr. Ross, as I understand it, you have almost unique credibility to talk about radical Islamic terrorism, having been in the belly of the beast, so to speak, um, working for radical Islamic organizations in Saudi Arabia before switching sides and, and dedicating the past few decades to counterterrorism. So, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit about your your background and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm a... a uh, my background is as a scholar um, and analyst on issues of uh, terrorism and violent non-state actors prior to, to founding my firm, Valens Global, which I founded in uh, 2014. Um, I appreciate your introduction of my background. I'm not sure if it necessarily gives me unique credibility, but at the very least, it's an origin story. Um, you know, as uh, a lot, as is the case for um a lot of uh, young Americans. Um, I went through this period of religious journey, um, it, it, probably uh, from my uh, early to mid twenties, and um, I grew up in in Southern Oregon in this small town called Ashland. Um, and um, part of my journey took me through the Islamic faith, and uh, I ended up with a job there with this. Um, international Saudi-backed organization called the Al-Haramain Islamic Foundation, uh, which you know, has since been shuttered uh, and you know, publicly listed by the U.S. government as being a front group for the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization. Um, they were propagating internally you know, within the community uh, a brand of Islam known as um, Salafism, or I think it's Salafi jihadism would be accurate to describe it, though um, much, much milder than we would see in later iterations with ISIS um, and the like. Um, it's somewhat consistent with um, uh, hardline uh, Islamist dawah or proselytization prior to uh, the 9-11 attacks. Um, so it gave me um, both uh, a little bit of um, a picture of um, how uh, different ideas uh, for those within the the jihadist movement or the Islamist movement more broadly fit together. Um, it gave me an interesting experience uh, with one kind of small part of the pre-9-11 fundraising apparatus that the Al-Qaeda organization, the broader movement had. And it certainly triggered um, an interest in the field which I'm currently in, focusing on uh, you know, terrorism and violent non-state actors. Um, when the 9-11 attacks occurred, I was living in New York City. I was uh, in law school at that point in time at NYU. It was my third year of law school. And I was able to you know, see the, the Twin Towers smoldering from outside the dorm I lived in on Mercer Street. And I really felt called, given that background, by the field that I ultimately ended up dedicating my career to. 
Okay, that's that's really interesting. So your latest book is titled Enemies Near and Far, How Jihadist Groups Strategize, Plot, and Learn. So tell us a bit about how this book came about and, and give us a quick overview. Yeah, one thing that's been that's striking to me when it comes to interpretation of militant Islamist groups is the way analysts often get big questions almost entirely wrong. Uh, so one example would be um, came in 2011 when the revolutions we that labeled the Arab Spring occurred. This consensus rapidly formed among analysts that these revolutions were devastating to militant groups. Um, I was on the other side of that debate. And then 2014, there was this other massive debate in the field uh, where uh, the consensus swung to the idea that as ISIS rose, Al-Qaeda would be rendered irrelevant. You can look back during this period and see multiple articles making just that case. And these predictions where people went all in on these conclusions didn't come to be. Now, reading subtly what was going on there, uh, there was clearly a disconnect in terms of understanding what was happening with these groups under the surface. There's an expectation about the impact of external events and how devastating they would be. Part of my interest in organizational learning by these groups was triggered actually by my own creation of Valens Global. Creating my own organization made me realize just how much you could do with a, a solid organizational design. You could you know, accomplish more and faster. You could produce better analysis. You could link the prognostications that a group has about the world to development of technologies or other scalable solutions to real problems. Understanding that made me um, think a lot more about what was going on under the hood for groups like Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS. And um, that is what this book is about. It's about organizational learning for militant groups. And this exploration is made possible in part by the fact that over the course of the past five years, a large number of documents providing insights into some of the internal functions of militant groups have become public. Uh, and we're able to understand their thinking in ways that, that we couldn't before, understand their processes in ways that we couldn't before. So to put it very simply, the argument that I make is that major organizations within the jihadist movement are learning organizations. They have different processes of organizational learning that will drive innovation, that, that will drive adaptation. And by understanding that dynamic better, we can both better predict the future of these groups and also better counter them. Okay, um, so since 9-11 over 20 years ago, we haven't seen a foreign terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Yet in that time, we've spent about $8 trillion on the war on terror, which has resulted in over a million casualties. So the way the war on terror has been approached has turned into one of the most hotly debated topics, with some claiming it was necessary to eliminate grave national security threats and others claiming it was filled with corruption and wastage. Um, so, Dr. Ross, I wanted to ask about your view on the way the war on terror 
um, or the U.S. government's um, response to terrorist organizations as a whole um, has been conducted over the past two decades or so and how effective it's been in quelling the threat of Islamic terrorism, not just in the short run, but also going forward in the long run as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, we're a little bit late to this question. Um, you know, uh, 11 years ago, um, I wrote a book called Bin Laden's Legacy, and the subtitle was Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror. Uh, and, um, you know, the argument that it made was both was it was financial, it was strategic. Uh, and um, this it was published around the time that uh, a couple a few things happened. You, know, you had the Arab Spring breakout, which was supposed to be devastating to militant organizations in the region. And you also had bin Laden killed on May 1st of 2011. And so there is this widespread assumption that, that, that it was over. I mean, I, I would refer back to that book written 11 years ago uh, on this question. But rather than focusing on the question of just the war on terror, I think I'd, I'd rather broaden the question a little bit and make it this. Why is the U.S. Why is not why is the U.S. government? But I, I'd say beyond that, governments writ large so ineffective at dealing with and addressing, you know, very broad systemic problems. There are some things that the U.S. government is actually very good at, and, and especially people who uh, have traveled a lot internationally will understand that there are <clears throat> a lot of ways that the U.S. government is effective um, compared to other governments for, you know, we get our mail on time. You know, for the most part in the U.S., you have clean water. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that function well. Um, but when it comes to big questions, um, there's something that's systemically you know, very ineffective about the U.S. government. You know, going back to when I wrote Bin Laden's legacy 11 years ago, I made some arguments about how we could change things. Some of them, I think, most of them, I think, um, are still quite relevant and live in 2022. There's a few uh, recommendations I made at the time um, that I don't agree with. I think I put a little bit more trust in experts and and um, in expert opinion at that time, uh, certainly than I do now. But I'd leave the answer as, you know, looking at any number of matters um, is, you know, there are a few things that the U.S. government is good at um, in dealing with with big issues. Um, you know, arguably one could put. Um, you know, the development of the COVID vaccine within that, although that may be more a product of private industry um, and the U.S. government letting it go through. Um, looking at mis slash disinformation, are we winning the war on disinformation? Is the U.S. government with the money being put into that doing a good job? Is it doing a good job with respect to uh, climate change and dealing with uh, mitigating its effects and adapting to the impact of climate change. I think that um, we have a bureaucratic system that is alarmingly ineffective. And I think looking at that broad picture, um, it's more than any individual set of policies. Um, the 21st century is extremely fast moving. You know, Ray Kurzweil, the famed futurist, noted back in around 2000 that at that pace of change, uh, the pace of change that he saw in 2000, um, there would be a whole 20th century's worth of progress uh, within 
14 years, by 2014, and that there would be another 20th century's worth of progress by uh, within another seven years, by 2021. Now, I don't know if that's fully accurate, but if you think back to 2000, it seems about accurate. 2000, you had about 46% of Americans online, only 46%. Uh, you had no social media. Um, you didn't have drones used as weapons by state actors or non-state actors. Um, you know, the, Going on, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, you have these multiple revolutions all occurring at the same time. And what we have to deal with these challenges right now is this molasses slow bureaucracy that will misfire 50 times before it gets something right, which can be very tactically devastatingly effective, but completely ineffective at a strategic level. That transcends that transcends issue sets. And I think that understanding that fundamental problem is an important part of dealing with the real challenges of the 21st century. So, I mean, just intuitively, you would think that um, uh, the U.S. military, an organization, you know, with uh, a budget in the hundreds of billions of dollars, um, would be able to easily outmaneuver um, radical um, Islamic organizations in the Middle East with, you know, not even a, a fraction of, of the resources. Um, so is there is there something in particular that allows the, um, these terrorist groups to, to be so um, persistent, persistent even in the face of, of, you know, so much opposition, not just from the U.S. government, but from, you know, so many governments around the world? Um, is, it, is it geography? Um, is there a way that they continue to, to manage to get funding and to continue to recruit um, new people, you know, more and more and, and keep keep on flourishing um, in the region or, or ha have been flourishing in the region for, for decades, even with, you know, so much opposition and so many resources um, from all over the world dedicated to, to defeating them? Well, the first thing they benefit from, that's um, a good bridge in for my last answer, uh, because I was talking about government ineffectiveness and how, you know, even with this ineffectiveness writ large, the U.S. government is still far more effective than a lot of other governments, especially in the Middle East and North Africa region, the MENA region. You have governments there where um, degree opposition to the government is probably a factor of deep government ineffectiveness, deep corruption, and issues like that. That's something that the jihadist movement has been able to seize on. You ask about funding, and this is an area where um, getting to the argument in enemies near and far, um, we talk about how learning organizations are able to make the most of what exists on the, the, the um, playing board that they're on. So um, in North Africa, uh, militant groups have done a fair job of tapping into black markets. Um, you know, looking at ISIS, not only was it able to capture territory, but it also benefited from black markets and also governmental corruption at the same time. You know, the Assad regime was doing business with ISIS while ostensibly fighting it. You know, this is a, a fairly documented fact. And to be very clear, I'm not saying that Assad's government was you know, secretly on ISIS's side. Um, I think the story is actually a lot more cynical than that. I think it was, um, it realized that if the opposition looked like ISIS, then the regime would do a much better job of surviving. So of the various factions fighting it, the Assad regime was okay with ISIS dominating, um, you know, being seen as dominant among the opposition. 
so for the question of, of why are these groups effective, I think that one of the facets of the 21st century is that alternative movements um, can prosper. Uh, and this ranges from benign movements to malign movements. Um, you know, there's a variety of social movements, which, um, you know, uh, one of us would probably support that have been empowered by the connected world that we live in, uh, while it at the same time uh, makes, you know, gives mass shooters a community. We, you know, who would have thought in 2000 that you would see a militant movement form around involuntarily celibate males, right? The incel movement. But this is a community made possible um, at, at the current strength by the interconnected world uh, that we're in. So, I mean, it's, it's a partial answer, right? It's a partial answer, uh, which lies in ineffectiveness of government. It lies in learning organizations. It lies in a background of corruption and bad governance that give these groups a recruiting ground. And I think those are all different facets of an answer to your question. Okay, um, so when most Americans think of jihadist terrorism, we tend to picture unsophisticated 8th century barbarians in the Middle East who want to take over the world or kill anyone who doesn't accept their fundamentalism. Um, however, like with all things, I, I think it's fairly safe to assume that it's more complicated than that. So can you tell us a bit about the motivations um, for adopting extremist methods, um, both for organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda um, and the domestic and foreign individuals that get involved? So in your estimation, is it driven primarily by faith, money, political power, or, or some other consideration entirely? There are multiple considerations um, at play. Um, you know, human motivation is a very complex thing. Uh, and you know, for a while, uh, I was engaged in um, you know, scholarly uh, discourse or debates about the phenomenon of radicalization, what the drivers are. Um, you know, I mean, certainly everything that you stated and more plays a role. Um, I think one thing you didn't mention uh, in your list, if I recall correctly, is grievance. Um, I think that you know, we could we could see fairly clear examples where different factors are at the forefront of what's driving an individual. Um, you know, there are some individuals who, uh, where their radicalization does seem more based on faith. There are others where disaffection seems at the forefront. Um, there are many, many, many where you can spot the grievances, but grievances alone perhaps um, don't show why this path was one that they went down. Social networking certainly has played uh, a very big role. So there's no one size fits all role, just like there's no one size fits all way that these groups look, right? Like in the case of ISIS, it was one of the most overtly brutal and remains one of the most overtly brutal of jihadist organizations. Um, when it captured territory, uh, it ruthlessly beheaded people. It uh, would post to social media videos of the kind of torture that it was inflicting upon those that it captured. Um, it committed genocide for no cognizable military purpose against a minority religious sect called the Yazidis. It took sex slaves and bragged of taking sex slaves. Um, so there, I think it, um, at least what their actions were, were not super complex. Um, similarly, while there's a complexity of motivations driving a lot of the regional groups, um, when we look to um, 
you know, some of the places where recently the movement has has spread to, um, like recently Mozambique um, is a country uh, in East Africa where we've seen a local branch claiming allegiance to ISIS arise. And, you know, both there and also in the Sahel region, we've seen um, times when villages have been overrun and you have dozens of people beheaded. Um, so there's complexity and motivation. Um, there are different uh, stripes of jihadist groups. Um, Al-Qaeda itself has tacked in the direction of being less overtly violent. Even while being a very violent organization, it now tries to keep its camera, its violence off camera, while ISIS has trended in a direction, um, and it may be alternate direction now, but it trended in a direction of you know ultra violence and almost taking on this sort of dystopian uh this dystopian aura um that's part of the landscape it's it's a complex landscape but um you know looking at i i I give the answer that i do because i don't want us to you know necessarily whitewash the damage that um some of these groups inflict okay um so yeah that that's interesting to me um because i think up until uh, uh, a few years ago, you, you you can turn on the news without um, hearing stories of, of ISIS or you know some other beheading or um, suicide bombing or something else, um, and, and same thing for for Al Qaeda. Um, but especially in the past couple of years, um, you you hear a lot less about these sorts of activities. Um, you know, I think ISIS has lost quite a lot of territory, a lot of ground. Um, so is I mean, are have we seen these threats um, reduced significantly in in the past couple of years? Have they just gone underground? Is is there a reason we hear so much less about it now than than we used to? I think they've metastasized um, across regions. Um, you know, there are places where we're seeing a lot more violence undertaken by these groups, uh, particularly in Africa. Um, I think part of the reason why um, you know those don't get a lot of play is because people to some extent don't care about violence occurring in Africa. Um, and I, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying that that's, you know, a good thing uh, as someone who spends a lot of time there, um, you know, African lives matter, but, you know, I think people are just are somewhat indifferent to, um, you know, a village being slaughtered in Mali or in Mozambique. Um, I think that the the group, certainly ISIS has declined since its height. You know, that's very clear. And you know, going back to 2014 through about 2017, you had this pace of attack in Europe and also ISIS-inspired attacks in the United States that was rather, you know, that was unprecedented uh, compared to, um, in terms of both the number of attacks, but also their lethality, uh, compared to previous terrorist movements, the Paris attacks, for example, in late 2015, you know, killed 130 people on the streets of Paris. That's a significant, significant amount of slaughter to inflict in a major Western city. So they, they've declined since that height. They do, they do less damage in the West. There still are, um, you know, a fair amount of uh, jihadist-related attacks, and some of them, uh, you know, are very, very big news in Europe. Uh, for example, um, fairly recently, uh, you had a French high school teacher who was beheaded 
um, after um, showing his students uh, cartoons of Muhammad. He wasn't doing so to disrespect the Islamic faith. He was doing so to illustrate the cartoon controversy. But you know, this militant um, nonetheless tracked him down and, and slaughtered him. That w- that created huge controversy uh, within France and with within Europe writ large. You know, I'd been called. Uh, to testify before the European Parliament around that time, and could see the various political ripples uh, that were occurring. Um, so I guess w- what I would say is that you know ISIS is not the same as at its height. Uh, Al Qaeda has pivoted in really interesting ways, which I think we will see as more of an overt problem maybe uh, a few years down the road. Um, they've. Uh, managed to become sort of another regional armed player uh, without really moderating their stance. And that opens up a lot of different paths that they could take. Um, They've always been playing a long game. And one thing they'd wanted to do years ago, and you can see this in uh, bin Laden's letters from Abbottabad, is the leadership of the organization decided that they wanted to rebrand a bit, that they're reputation had been tarnished by certain overt acts of brutality. Um, so there, there's still a pace of attack. These groups are still out there. Um, I think perhaps one final reason I would give um, as to why we see less about them is ties in with your question about the war on terror, right? I think that we see generally are when we try to make a difference in terms of reducing the power of these groups, the U.S. response is not always effective. Sometimes uh, it may exacerbate the problem. And so um, watching kind of something on the news where something bad is happening, but there's nothing we can do about it, it's perhaps something that Americans are not as interested in. Okay, um, so now I wanted to to talk about some broad recommendations on the policy front. So with all the information um, that you, you revealed in this book, all, all the information that we now have that we perhaps didn't have before in the letters and, and so forth, um, you know, if you woke up tomorrow as the, the president of the United States, um, what would be some policy or strategy changes that you would try to implement or adopt? On, on this particular issue set, uh, I mean, I think uh, first and foremost, um, what flows from our recommendations is that we should see these organizations as learning organizations. I think that if we understand them better in that way, we'll be able to better anticipate what they'll be up to next. Um, I think a second thing is in terms of what you do to counter them, targeting centers of learning is important. Um, there might be you know, a particular leader who drives innovation or a particular uh, part of the organization that drives innovation. And if you can um, take them out of the fight in some way, um, that will have a disproportionate effect um, because it's the parts of the organization that tend to innovate in ways that help it that often are the most dangerous. You know, um, I think a final thing um, that ties in is we should ask ourselves equal questions about our own effectiveness in learning. Uh, I'd like to see us more critically evaluating analytic conclusions and um, among other things, rewarding those who might be outliers in terms of what they're seeing, but whose ideas prove right over time. Uh, I'd like us to focus on our own processes of learning. Um, Those are also things that I would like to see that I think would put us on a better footing. 
Okay, um, so next I wanted to, to briefly switch gears and talk about some of the parallels between radical Islamic terrorism abroad and, and the types of attacks that are more common in the United States, such as mass shootings, um, especially in schools. So after a string of school shootings, especially with the latest shooting in Uvalde, where the police failed to respond for over an hour, I'm sure this sort of um, th this sort of problem is, is um, you know, fresh on the minds of a lot of um, school administrators and legislators. Um, so you did a talk a few years back on crisis architecture and how we can design spaces with features that act as an impediment to potential attackers. Um, so could you please tell us a bit about um, this, this idea and, and some of the features that it commonly includes and what it's designed to do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for asking about crisis architecture. It's something that I'm uh, pretty passionate about. Uh, the idea behind crisis architecture, uh, what I found um, looking through um, both a number of terrorist attacks, but also a number of mass shootings, is that there are a number of different commonalities that they had. One commonality is that you know mass attacks, whether terrorism or a school shooting, tend to end very quickly. Um, you know, they're almost all over within 10 minutes. Um, the, the most devastating attacks um, often occur in well under 10 minutes. And then a second thing that I saw was that in many cases, the architecture of the building in question and the features of the building stood in the way of those who were trying to escape the attacker. A good example is Sandy Hook. Uh, everyone, I'm sure, is familiar with the um, tragic shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. They had actually um, done mass shooter drills. Uh, the mass shooter drills would have students sheltering in place. They'd done them so recently that you know one of the doors of a classroom where students were killed um, still had paper on the window for one of their mass shooter drills. The teachers executed on the drills perfectly. The problem was that the doors didn't lock from the inside. So they were sheltering in place, but there was nothing to protect the kids while they were sheltering. So the space that people are in sometimes does not protect them the way that it should. But then there's a flip side to this, which is, you know, think of high schools with barbed wire fences up and metal detectors at the entrance. And at some point, they, they, they emphasize the threat. They do not seem like safe spaces. Uh, in fact, the metal detectors, the barbed wire, the other safety features make them look ugly. They make them look like prisons and they emphasize that students are unsafe. So in formulating crisis architecture, I asked the question, what could be done to increase safety and also preserve the form and the function and the beauty of the architecture of these spaces? And um, I put in place you know, eight different principles of, of crisis architecture to, you know, I'll, I'll quickly just go through a few of them. So one of them is to enable creation of distance. In other words, you should allow people to put as much distance as possible between a shooter and themselves quickly. Um, you know, a good example of this is the Pentagon, which is huge, right? It, it's the world's largest office building, but the average time it takes to get from any one point in the Pentagon to any other is just seven minutes because of the interconnected hallways um, and stairwells and the like. It's actually easy to move around even such a big building. 
there's to allow safe exit for many points, which is um, you know particularly important when you have people hold up in classrooms. Having you know, non-traditional exits like pop-out windows or rope ladders that can drop down is important. Uh, there's incorporation of angles, another important aspect. If you look at the um, shooting that occurred, the notorious shooting at the Parkland High School, um, the shooter in that case you know, walked down a hallway and was able to engage and kill every victim from that hallway without ever entering a classroom. Um, because of this lack of angles, the the suggestions go on, but they, it answers. The, I think that crisis architecture is important because we spend money on safety features, and too often the safety features are not linked to a terminal outcome that will save people. Right? There are three terminal outcomes that will save lives: it's fight, you know, flight, let them get out of the building, or shelter in place. And so having like a small um, alcove where someone can escape a shooter um, might be good in the moment, but if you have nowhere to go from the alcove, then ultimately the shooter can just come into the alcove and kill the people there. Just like if you shelter in place in a classroom where the doors won't lock, you're sheltered in place like you should, but if the shooter comes in, you're dead. Crisis architecture recognizes the importance of the built environment in saving lives in mass shooter situations. And you know, post Duvalde, there's been a resurgence of interest in this. I fairly recently gave um, a talk for, uh, you know, certainly part of the what's called the Prototalk series for this company called Protogetic, looking at principles of crisis architecture. But something, you know, someone who has two elementary school age daughters, um, being able to protect people's lives in places like schools is of, uh, so that I'm particularly passionate about. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, um, Dr. David Gartenstein Roth. It was a pleasure joining you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.